0: What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these pandemic times, the pandemic of COVID-19 and the centuries long history and violence of white supremacy. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister and I'm the faith coordinator for showing up for racial justice or surge. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. It's Holy Week. As I sit down to work on this Good Friday episode, Derek Chauvin's trial has started. The cop who murdered George Floyd. The trial has only just begun, but we already know that Floyd is being blamed for his own death in that courtroom. And we know that the trial, even if it miraculously finds Chauvin guilty of the murder he committed it won't bring justice for George and his family not until we transform the conditions that allow cops to kill with impunity on behalf of the state will there be justice. Jesus goes on trial this week a very different kind of trial since Jesus was not a state-sanctioned murderer but I wonder too To what extent both trials are shams, to what extent both trials mock us with the question what is truth, to what extent crucifixion will be excused, to what extent the powerful will wash their hands of it all once the trial is over. It's Holy Week. The parallels are stark. The defense for Chauvin boils down to claiming that George Floyd was a threat who deserved to be crucified. The defense for Pontius Pontius Pilate? Basically the same. It's Holy Week. Where are the signposts right now? Who are the signposts right now? This Lent we've been practicing self-reflection in community with each other Our contributors have been asking each other and ourselves, what can we learn from our mistakes and misperceptions, from our own places of pain, and also our places of joy, healing, and hope, which might guide us in this time as white Christians working for racial justice? What ways of being and belonging, meaning-making and ministry, spiritual practices, and movement practices can help us move towards God and towards community? The late Dr. Vincent Harding, elder and leader in the Black Freedom Movement, often spoke of live human signposts, people in our lives who can help us find the way towards greater wholeness and multiracial democracy. This Lent, we look towards each other, to the scripture, and to the live human signposts in each of our lives to guide our path forward. Signposts in Holy Week? The Gospel reading for Good Friday this year, Year B, in the lectionary cycle is two very long chapters in John, all of chapters 18 and 19. Many years ago, I was asked to lead the Good Friday service at the small church where I had done my seminary internship. They had a practice of the pastor reading the scripture text aloud, and that year it was, yes, these two chapters from John. I remember reading it, standing in the pulpit and suddenly understanding the terror of what was happening, the tricks and the mockery and the sarcasm and the fear and how Pilate was playing everyone, I could feel it in my body. I'm not going to read it to, uh, for you today, but not because those chapters are hard reading, which they definitely are, but because they are, as I said, long If you want to read them first, then just pause here and come back. Maybe try reading them aloud like I did. See how it feels in your body. Notice what new information you get. So here's a brief summary then of John 18 and 19. These two chapters cover a lot of ground. We begin with Jesus being arrested by Roman soldiers along with police sent by the high-level temple authorities Who were collaborators with Rome. Peter cuts off a slave's ear. Jesus is taken to high priest where he is questioned and beaten. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. Jesus is taken to Pilate, the Roman regional overseer, and Pilate interrogates him, has him beaten and mocked. Pilate also has a back and forth with the collaborators until he finally gets them to declare their allegiance to Rome. Then Pilate hands Jesus over to the Roman soldiers and Jesus is mocked and crucified with his mother, his Aunt Mary, Mary Magdalene, and an unnamed beloved disciple looking on. With his last breaths, he creates community. Jesus dies. His body is mutilated by Roman soldiers and then two of his friends, Joseph and Nicodemus, take his body and tend to it, and make sure it is anointed with resins and aloe, wrapped tenderly and safely entombed. This year, as I am reading this story in light of everything we are living through, and in light of our questions for this Signpost in the Wilderness series, I find myself in the odd position of appreciating John's gospel. If you've been listening to this, you know this is a strange place for me to be. Appreciating John's gospel for the clarity it has about this story of Jesus' execution by Rome. There are three signposts, if you will, of clarity that are speaking to me out of John's version of this story. The first is about collaborators. So as much as we take immense amounts of care on this podcast to resist anti-Semitic readings of the Bible, there is no denying that there were Jewish leaders who collaborated in Jesus's execution. And I think a lot of the anguish we see in the Gospels, the intra-community arguments, is trying to reckon with this fact that some Jewish leaders collaborated with Rome in the suffering of other Jewish people. And I don't mean just Jesus's execution, but also the general Roman repression tactics in Judea and Galilee that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And for me, the fact that John names names about who specifically is responsible for this state sanctioned murder is helpful for clarifying the power dynamics at play, both in the Good Friday story and the broader context of Jesus's community as well. In John, there are no crowds yelling at Jesus, jeering at him, crowds that have gotten vaguely reinterpreted to mean either the entirety of the Jewish people or the entirety of humanity and all that is cheering for Jesus's death Those passion plays that have crowds representing all of us shouting for Jesus' death because we're so sinful are so entirely missing the point of what's happening. And to be clear, that's not what's happening in the other Gospels either. In all the Gospels, it is a small group of Roman-appointed Jewish leaders, chief priests, some Pharisees, some members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that was also under control of Rome. But that crowd language makes it easy to miss or mislead. In John, though, the Roman soldiers and temple police take Jesus only to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and his father-in-law and Pilate. And when Pilate has his back and forth with, quote unquote, the Jews, a careful reading shows that this really means the chief priests. Again, a small group of Jewish collaborators with Rome. Collaborators who were also appointed by Rome for their positions. Complicated power dynamics, right? I talked about this on the webinar I offered last Lent on the Gospel of John, which I will link to um, in the transcript. So who does it benefit to shift from Rome and collaborators To, oh, it was everybody, it was the crowd, it was all the Jewish people, it was all humanity. Because it wasn't. John's Gospel, as I talked about with Blythe Barno a couple of weeks ago, is so harsh on quote-unquote the Jews. There's a clear binary, a line in the sand, if you will quote-unquote, the Jews, is the phrase John uses repeatedly in his gospel to signify who is against Jesus, Jesus' people, who are also Jews. This has caused interpreters' fits for generations. But John gives us the key to understanding who they mean with this phrasing, quote-unquote, the Jews, in these trial scenes where it is not vague crowds, but specific named people. And in Pilate's manipulation of that small group until they declare their allegiance to Rome. We have no king, but the emperor, they declare. That's who John's gospel is so angry with. Not all of Judaism against which Jesus is the answer, but the collaborators, those who have chosen sides with the emperor rather than the Divine One of Moses and Miriam, of Abraham and Sarah. It makes me wonder if that stark binary in John is because that shift was already happening when John's Gospel was being crafted, that people were forgetting it was Rome they needed to be organizing against, rather than each other. It's the great trick that Christianity pulled as it became the dominant force of the Roman Empire. Jesus' death? Oh, Roman Christianity says, it was the Jewish people's fault. It was Judaism's fault. It was sinful humanity's fault. Don't buy it. All of that is a deflection to turn our attention away from Rome, to blame all the wrong people, to make us forget who we're supposed to be organizing against. Which brings me to the second signpost of clarity. are two more people in this story that John names that the other Gospels don't actually name at all. Peter and Malchus. Now, Peter, you probably recognize, right? But Malchus? If you had asked me last week who Malchus is, I would not have known. I've not paid attention before. Malchus is a person enslaved to the chief priest. Malchus's ear is cut off. By Peter. All the Gospels tell this story. When Jesus is arrested by Roman soldiers, a disciple grabs a sword and slices off the ear of an enslaved person. Jesus tells the disciple to put the sword away. And in the other Gospels, neither of those people has a name, but here in John, they both do. And I credit the Jewish Annotated New Testament for pointing out to me that this enslaved person is actually named Malchus. John gives it a whole sentence in the middle of this episode. The slave's name was Malchus. This is John waving their hands at us, shouting, Hey, this is important. Pay attention. Why? Why is this important? Well, for one thing, I think it's because it gives dignity to the enslaved person. It reminds the audience via Peter that Malchus is actually a person, a human, a sibling, an oppressed person, just like Peter. The thing is, in into- in, a- in attacking Malchus, Peter is attacking exactly the wrong person here. Now we can have a conversation another day about the practicality of one dude with a borrowed sword going up against all these soldiers and cops. But the point is, Malchus is not the enemy. Malchus is enslaved. He's not a soldier, he's not the cops. He is enslaved. Malchus didn't order this arrest. Malchus is there because Malchus was ordered to be. is in no position to say no. Malchus lives under threat of violence, just like Peter does. The nameless stories in in the other gospels get at this point, but somehow for me, making sure that Malchus is named makes this point even stronger. Making sure that Peter is named makes this point even stronger. Put your sword away, Jesus says, to the leader who will carry on in his name. And it's not a conversation about nonviolence or self-defense in the face of oppression. It's about knowing who your adversary is, and that is not Malchus. It's another reminder not to forget who we're supposed to be organizing against. Which brings me to the third signpost clarity. Jesus never stops being Jesus. Jesus knows this moment is coming. He's prepared for it. And he stays grounded in his purpose throughout this terrorizing story. Jesus stops Peter. He later tells Pilate that if Jesus acted like the Romans acted, all his followers would be fighting. But, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Put your sword away, he says to Peter. Attacking the wrong person? Is not how we win. Jesus is clear about who the adversary is and how they behave. He refuses to be manipulated by Pilate because he knows it's a rigged game. And he never turns on his people. Through multiple interrogations and beatings, he never gives up info about who they are, never betrays them. What he does is insist on community, insist that Peter recognize Malchus, for example, and assure, Jesus assures that his beloveds are cared for before he dies, creating new forms of relationship, new forms of family, with his last breaths. These are the signposts of this Good Friday story. Remember the power we're organizing against. Don't attack the sibling who is oppressed just like you. Stay grounded in your purpose, even in the face of the Empire's violence. As I've thought about our Lent reflection questions and these signposts, I recon- I recognize where I've missed the signs. Maybe you do too. We blame quote unquote the South rather than the whole power structure of white supremacy and a small group of white Christian men who hold an outsized amount of power. We blame and disinvest from poor and working class white communities, cutting off the ears of those living under oppression. We forget our purpose and end up collaborating with Rome. And maybe even we hold ourselves as individual white people, responsible for the violence of the entire system. And We believe that this violence is because of our own individual sinfulness, the weight of that guilt and shame freezing us, keeping us focused on counting up our individual mistakes, while the white supremacist structure keeps rolling on, happy to have us distracted by our litany of individual May us. This is not to say that anything goes and that we shouldn't be mindful about our behavior, our choices, yes, our allegiances, our own complicity in this violent system, and work to change those things. What I'm saying is, what we've been sold is that the problem is entirely our individual sins not a power structure that was going to execute Jesus for being a threat regardless of whether Peter cut off Malchus's ear or denied knowing his friend. What we've been sold is that we should spend all our time counting up our entirely individual sins, beating our individual mea culpa's into our chests, as if that is the remedy for sin rather than figuring out how our complicity is tied into a bigger power structure, how it is actually collective power, collective organizing to change the structure that will get us all free. On Good Friday, we sit at the foot of the cross, its own kind of signpost. We grieve for the crucifixion of our friend, for all the crucifixions of so many. As we sit here, grieving, wondering how we stop this from ever happening again, let's remember John's clarity. Remember the power we're organizing against. Don't attack the sibling who is oppressed just like you. Stay grounded in your purpose even in the face of the Empire's violence. As I was working on this episode, Nicola texted me that Chauvin's trial is expected to take four weeks. Four weeks? What about this could possibly take four weeks, other than Pilate trying to make clear why Jesus had to die? We send all our love and protection to George Floyd's family, and the good folks in Minneapolis who have been organizing for a better, safer world. Follow Surge Twin Cities and the organization Black Visions for updates on how you can support folks on the ground during and after the trial. Another action is, as we've been inviting you to do all of Lent, is to get your people together and have these conversations. When have you, the collective you, been distracted from who we should be organizing against? When have we cut off Malchus's ear? When have we strayed from our purpose? When have you, the individual you, taken on the burden of solving the whole world's problems all by yourself? And what can you learn from these experiences to help you organize the collective you, to help you organize for building a new world? And finally, again, we suggest getting Surge Faith's Community Safety for All toolkit for congregations who want to stop calling the cops. Listen, we can hang all the Black Lives Matter banners on our buildings that we want, but if we're still calling the cops on quote unquote suspicious people, for example, then we're actually collaborating with Rome. You can find the toolkit on our website and the link is in the transcript. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. For Easter Sunday, yes, Easter is coming, We'll have a resistance word from Margaret Ernst. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor, Max Pearl. Good Friday, blessings to you. And blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a whole new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Anne Dunlap.